The reading is taken from 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8 to 14, and it's on page 1224 in the Church Bibles. So starting at 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Well, thank you very much, um, Vicky, for reading to us. While I'm getting myself organized, myself organized up here, I can mention the confusing thing is that there are two bookstalls. So one is the one that Bob was mentioning nearer the extension, the, the white table. On the wooden table is, uh, again, a bookstore you're not allowed to take anything from. It's just for browsing, really, to help tee you up for Advent. Advent Sunday is next week. So if you want a, a little inspection of that table, that's, that's got some Bible reading suggestions for younger and older that um, you could take the little red sheet of paper and order yourself from. We're not quite as helpful at All Saints as Faraday are, so um, you've still got to do the ordering for that. But please don't take the books and don't try and hand over money at that table. Um, Just take a bit of paper and get some ideas. And there'll be a bigger Christmas bookstall, I think, next week with uh, one or two other suggestions. We've got 2 Peter 3 um, open in front of us. Let's pray with these words um, before us. Lord, it's our prayer today that through your word you'd enable us, please, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Let me remind you of a couple of things that we've had in the service so far already. Verse 3 of our first song. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. Well, we sung that in our service already. And then in the creed we declared this. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So let me just pose the question as we get underway. Um, As for, for you, whether that kind of talk is really just, do you think it's just pious sentimentalism? I'm thinking that many who 
aren't here in church with us might well think that's the case. Pious sentimentalism, pie in the sky when you die, um, with the backcloth of reading or following news stories like Ukraine, Israel and Gaza at the moment. God doesn't seem to be doing much about it. What makes us think he will sort out all that's wrong in the world and all that's wrong in our lives, in our experience in the future? But I suspect that the Apostle Peter would have been very happy to have the sentiments we've had already in our service, um, given what he says uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3. Our reading from 2 Peter 3 is a good example of the way he anticipated a bright future for God's universe and for God's people. For many today, the events of our world are just the product of chance collisions of electrons and selfish genes, and if history is going nowhere, then there is no point in looking for meaning or purpose in life. Selfish genes produce selfish people who make up selfish societies, and we've just got to get used to that. But into that kind of hopelessness, Peter's message is actually very positive. This world we saw last week in our reading there had a fixed starting point. God is its maker. And from that beginning, history follows a straight line. It's not going round and round in circles. A straight line to another fixed point in the future. There's something definite to look forward to based on God's promise in the language of Verse 13, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I want to focus mainly on two verses from what Vicky read to us. Uh, two verses really is just a window onto the whole passage. Verses 8 and 9. And I think they give us three vital clues on why at the moment God seems to allow evil, including war, to continue unchecked in our world. So the the first clue is in verse 8 of our reading, the first verse we had read, and it concerns God's perspective. God's perspective. Let me read verse 8 again. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So if the delay from our perspective in God sorting out the world seems like a long time in Peter's day, I imagine that it's even more so today. We live nearly 20 centuries on, and still Jesus hasn't come back to right the evils of our world. We might well ask, as it seems Peter's contemporaries were asking, where is the promise of his coming? But that is because we fail to view things from God's perspective. One of God's names in the Old Testament translates as I am. He is the eternal God, always in the present tense. No past for God, no future in one sense for him. And that explains a lot about the perspective from which he views the world. To a seven-year-old, one year would seem much longer a much longer period of time than it would to a 70-year-old. It seems to take forever for a 7-year-old to wait for their next birthday because one year is a much greater percentage of the total span of their life, whereas to a 70-year-old, I imagine, the years seem to be coming thick and fast. 
and to the eternal Lord, the 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection really are nothing. By the maths of verse 8, just look at verse 8 again, um, those 2,000 years, well, it's as if they happened just the day before yesterday. 2,000 years equals two days. So we worry about the long delay, but it's all a matter of time scale. And from the perspective of an eternal God, the timings on which he runs the universe operate on a scale completely different from the way we might run our diaries, for example. There's a story told about Philip Brooks. He was a great American preacher in uh, Boston on the northeast uh, side of uh, the U.S. He actually wrote the words of one of my favorite carols, A Little Town of Bethlehem. He was normally, it said, completely unflappable. But one day, a friend found him pacing up and down in his study. Whatever is the trouble, Dr. Brooks, asked his friend. The trouble is, Brooks replied, that I'm in a hurry and God isn't. But you see, when we tell God to get a move on and to sort his world out, to be honest, that probably means we are getting ideas above our station. We may be puzzled by his delays, but we must learn that his delays are not necessarily his denials. His timing is often mysterious because his purposes are vast and far-reaching. How could they possibly be anything else? He's an eternal God. So remember God's perspective, says Peter to us to start with. Secondly, remember God's patience, which comes very clearly in verse 9. If you look down at that, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish. So that's another vital clue, it seems to me, as to why God doesn't sort out our world straight away with all its suffering and pain. It's not that God is being slow or because he's lost interest in the world. There's another explanation. It's because he is patient. If you imagine a scene outside Waitrose, there are two mums there with screaming babies in their trolleys. And... You look at them, a lot of noise, what's going on here? Neither mother seems to be doing anything about it. What's the explanation, you think? Well, things may not be what they seem. Maybe one mother is concentrating on something else. She's on the phone, her mind is elsewhere, so she doesn't really care that the child is screaming. That, you could say, is indifference. Maybe the other mother is 100% aware of the noise, But her inactivity is not indifference. She's simply doing nothing for the time being because she anticipates that the child will before long stop screaming. And she's waiting for that to happen, counting down the minutes until it happens. So very different explanations there. Indifference and patience are very different things. And Peter says that God's apparent inactivity faced by all that's wrong in the world doesn't mean that he's stopped caring. He's not indifferent. He's being patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Now, there is a note of warning being sounded in that verse. That's for sure, isn't it? 
we look at the suffering of the world and say how awful, but this verse implies that there is a fate worse than the many bitter tragedies of our world, which you'd have to include war and illness in that list. The fate worse than death is to perish eternally or to come under the eternal judgment of God. And God doesn't want anybody to suffer that fate. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. He took the judgment that you and I deserve so that we never need to face that judgment ourselves. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And that is also why he delays judgment in the meantime to give everyone the time they need to repent. There's another implication in that verse. It implies that there won't be any second chances when Jesus finally returns. The implication is then it will be too late. Rephrase it slightly. No second chances when we die, if that happens first. Now, it's clear, is the time to become friends with God. Because for the moment, God is waiting patiently. So the delay of Christ's second coming isn't in any sense the failure of God's plan. It's actually the condition of its success. It means that we can come to know God for ourselves in the meantime. He's patient. And he's just waiting for that turning to him to happen before the second coming occurs. If I can just speak personally, I am very glad that God is patient. I'm glad that God didn't decide to step in and put the world to rights before April 1981. If Jesus Christ had returned in March 1981, I, Simon Scott, would not have been ready to meet him. But he's patient and he put his judgment on hold. And actually, the delay still carries on if anybody else has yet to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. God is waiting with an ache in his heart for you to do that. So that is a second clue as we puzzle over the suffering of our world, God's patience. And it leaves us with one final thing to notice here in these couple of verses, God's priority. If God is being patient... What is the one thing which God calls on us all to do with the time that we have? What is his priority for you and me? And I don't think you can miss it in verse 9. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So his priority for you and me is repentance. And this is just an amazing thought, is it not? It's an amazing thought that God puts his whole program for the world on hold so that individually, one by one, people will repent. Now, I want to spell out exactly how you might do that with uh, the time I've got left so that nobody's in any doubt what they need to do to have a right relationship with God. And you can sum up what repentance involves in three words beginning with the letter T. This is me trying to be... Uh, Simple, I hope it's not irritatingly so, but three T's, to turn, to trust, and to take. Now, to turn, you could say, is the most important. It's absolutely vital. There was a friend of mine who died not long ago who illustrated this aspect of repentance by referring to an old-fashioned 
military command from his army career. And I think it dated from the time when soldiers had to present themselves one by one in a line at a table to pick up their pay. But it carried on at the parade ground as a drill maneuver. The command was, to the front, salute. And you just took two paces forward, as you were getting to the table to collect your pay, I guess. Two paces forward, paused, saluted, and then did an about turn and marched away in the opposite direction. And repentance is like that. I need to take a look at the life I have been living. So that's the pause. Salute it. And then walk off in the other direction. So our natural lifestyle is to live for ourselves. And we need to take a look at that, acknowledge it, pause, then turn from that and walk in the opposite direction, leaving it behind us. So repentance always has that idea of turning, changing the direction of our lives. That's the first T. More than that, I need to trust God. In particular, trust him that he will forgive me because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. There's a very famous verse in the Old Testament. Forgive me if we've uh, visited this verse uh, not long ago. I, I, I have a sense that we have, but I think it may have been in the morning. If not, it's good revision for you. This is a, a lovely verse that is often in people's minds as we uh, get towards Christmas. Famous verse in the Old Testament which says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, it's referring to Jesus, the iniquity or wrongdoing of us all. And I like to illustrate it like this, um, with a prop. Let me just imagine that this hand here represents my life. Uh, You imagine that light represents God and his holiness, the light of God shining down on me. I'm made for a relationship with God. So this hand representing my life is made to relate freely and openly to God. But uh, I have a barrier between me and God. This is a black object representing my sin, cutting me off from God in heaven. So the verse says this, doesn't it? Um, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one of us to his own way. Where's my sin? It's on me. Cutting me off from God and his holiness and purity. But let this hand represent Jesus Christ. He did live in perfect relationship with his Father in heaven. No barrier between him and God in heaven. Nothing to cut him off from his heavenly Father. But listen to how that verse continues. Each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You ask when it happened? Well, it happened when Jesus died on the cross. With what result? It means that if I trust what Jesus has done, I am now free. No barrier. Free to know God as if I had no sin. So the key question facing us is this. Where is my sin? Is it still on me? Or is it on Jesus? Or to put it another way, am I trusting what Jesus did when he died on the cross? And that's the second aspect 
of repentance. You wouldn't repent if you didn't think there was a way for God to deal with my sin and forgive me and accept me. He's being patient because Christ died for me. So trust it. Turn trust. The last one is for take, T for take. Because, of course, Jesus didn't only die on the cross and then stay dead. He was raised from the dead three days later, and he is alive today. So I must take him as my Lord from now on. He has the right to tell me what to do, and I must obey. Now, of course, if Jesus Christ loved me enough to die for me, then it stands to reason he will never, never, never ask me to do anything which is bad for me to do. If I take him as my Lord, it will always be for the best. So I must take him as my Lord as an initial step, and then I take him as my Lord every day from now on. I travel through life in relationship with him for the rest of my life. So that's me trying to take a slow look at this word, repentance. Turning from my sin, trusting Jesus' death, and taking him from this point onwards as my Lord. That's what repentance means. It starts with a prayer where I tell Jesus that that's what I'm doing. I'm doing those things, as it were. Jesus is delaying the judgment, and the reason is this. He wants us to take those sorts of steps of repentance. If you've never taken a step like that, then Jesus wants you to pray in that way, maybe even today. On the table at the back is a little booklet called Journey into Life, which has a prayer you could pray that would help you to do that if you've never done that. Now, many of us have prayed a prayer like that long ago, and in one sense, we don't need to pray that prayer again. There's an initial starting in the Christian life that is that way. But there will be aspects of turning from sin and trusting Jesus' death and taking him as Lord that we all need to do continually. It's very striking to me that Peter is writing to Christians and he says to them, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. So repentance is an ongoing thing for all of us. And therefore nobody should be writing themselves out of the script at this point. I don't really want us to look uh, at great length at the rest of the passage in fine detail, but it tells you, does it not, that the stakes are high. The day of the Lord's going to come like a thief, and when it does, it's an awesome event that defies the imagination the way it's described here. How do you describe the indescribable? The heavens disappearing, the earth laid bare. The world as we know it will be utterly devastated with as much warning as you got when the house was burgled. That was completely unexpected, wasn't it? Except that God hasn't got sloppy. He's promised, and it will happen when the time is right. His timing. So, asked Peter, since everything's going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question in verse 11. But let me read that verse again, if you've found it, and I'll read it with a, a slight change of emphasis. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? I don't know if that's the intended contrast, but I think it's there. Things, as we know them now, will be finished when Jesus returns 
There'll be a great transformation in them at any rate. What will matter then is what kind of people we are. So a lot of the things that we prize so highly now will seem much, much less important. Our university degrees, our possessions, our home refurbishment, those sorts of things will not matter in the grand scheme of things. Only one thing will count then. What's that? Well, it's character, righteousness. And that's why the priority of verse 9 is repentance. We're getting ready for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. So the question this passage asks us is not, have you arrived yet? None of us here have. But have you started? And if you've started, are you still moving forward to that day? We're going to hear more about that next week as we look at the end of the letter. But as we pause uh, and prepare for communion, let's just slow down and stop for a second and ponder what God's priority, repentance, will look like for each of us. And then Monica will uh, lead us in the next bit of the service.